Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Happy Sunday, Screenwriting Life family. It is producer Jeff here to let you know that we are doing something a little different this week. Um, last weekend, actually, Meg, Lorian, and I were all attendees at CineStory. Um, it is a screenwriting nonprofit, and it's actually sort of the genesis of our show. That's how the three of us met. So we really owe this show to CineStory, and um, we met a couple Screenwriting Life family members there which was really fun it was great to meet all of you Um, but because of that we decided to kind of take this week off and rerun some old content so um, if you never got a chance to catch it actually another screenwriting life listener savannah hooked us up with the london screenwriting life festival and um, she actually facilitated an interview with megan laurian in a very beautiful way savannah you did a great job on the interview and um, was gracious enough to offer that interview to us to run in our audio feed so this is an amazing conversation between megan laurian kind of about the emotional stakes and emotional work that our characters need to engage in if they want to tell a good story. And, you know, I feel like one of the things that really separates our show, and really, I think Megan Laurie and both as writers is their profound interest in the emotional inner workings of what it means to be a person or a character. So I think um, it's a really great conversation and really, I think a great indicative episode as to what we do on the show. So we hope you enjoy it. Before I play that, though, I did want to read a couple Apple podcast reviews because we've been busy with guests and haven't gotten a chance to shout you all out as our listeners. This is Emily Cheng from Taiwan, who gave us five stars and says, this is a helpful guide from across the Pacific Ocean. I'm a full-time writer from Taiwan and was in LA from 2016 to 2018. Meg gave a speech at UCLA and I was lucky to attend the event. Even though our industry here in Taiwan is quite different from the US, I get a lot of useful tips from both Meg and Lorian. I've been working on three projects almost simultaneously the past seven or eight months and it's been really, really exhausting, sometimes even horrifying. I'll always remember you said, and it's my responsibility to bring my characters to this world because only I can do it. And I'm happy to let you know that your show helped me through 2020 and one of my three going on scripts is gonna be produced in summer 20, whoa, that's amazing. Emily's having her work produced in 2021. Emily, that's so exciting. Thanks for being a fan. We love your review. Up next, we have Riz Tone, who says, uh, extraordinary, with a five-star review. I write most of my days from nine to one. Before that, I spend a half hour on my indoor trainer bike, and I've started listening to your wonderful general podcast while on that bike, and I've injected rocket fuel into my process because of it. Every day, you give me something that I can put to work immediately. Sometimes I even have to get off the bike and go write something down at that moment, and then I develop that later. In addition to that, you've allowed me to feel more forgiving about my own doubts, and that just makes me that just makes them much less powerful. Thanks, guys. We will continue to read your reviews, um, and thank you so much for writing them. Uh, they really help us continue to feel inspired to keep running the show, and um, we get to see your writing. So if you haven't, please write us a five-star review. Remember, you can always join the Facebook group and email us at thescreenwritinglife uh, at gmail.com. And I've been talking for way too long. So without further ado, let's listen to Megan Lorian from the 2021 London Screenwriting Festival. Amazing. So in a second, we're going to meet Megan Lorian. And they're going to be interviewed by our own amazing Savannah Morgan. Uh, But before that, to get us in the mood, I think we should watch the trailer for Inside Out. Why don't we roll it, Joe? So, Riley, how was the first day of school? Fine, I guess. 
Did you guys pick up on that? Sure oh, did. Well. Something's wrong. Signal the husband. <clears throat> Uh-oh. She's looking at us. What did she say? Oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What is it, woman? What? I'm Joy. This is sadness. That's anger. What? This is disgust. Uh, and that's fear. Ah! We're Riley's emotions. These are Riley's memories. They're mostly happy, you'll notice, not to brag. I wanted to maybe hold one. What happened? Sadness. She did something to the memory. Is everything okay? I don't know. Take it back, Joy. Great. Joy, no. Let's Wait. Go. The core memories. Ah! No, 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 no. Can I say that curse word now? What do we do now? Nothing's working. Why isn't it working? We have a major problem. Oh, I wish Joy was here. We can fix this. We just have to get back to headquarters. That's long-term memory. You could get lost in there. Think positive. Okay. I'm positive you will get lost in there. What was that? Was it a bear? There are no bears in San Francisco. I saw a really hairy guy. He looked like a bear. This place is huge. Imagination land? No way. Dream Productions? Rainbow Unicorn. She's right there. I loved you in Fairy Dream Adventure Part 7. Okay, bye. I love you. We can't focus on what's going wrong. There's always a way to turn things around. Congratulations, San Francisco. You've ruined pizza. Who's the birthday girl? Great freeze! Hang on. Riley, here we come. Hey. My job is done. I will leave you in the capable hands of Savannah. Have a fabulous time. I'll be back at the uh, the end. And a reminder to everyone, please ask Amazeballs questions. Have fun. Love the movie so much. And see you on the other side. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for I having us. I don't think I've ever seen that trailer. Oh, really? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, that was funny. I was watching. I was like, ooh. And like all the pieces of how the movie fit together and my experience of it. It was, so it was, it was, it was an interesting... Happy flashback. A flashback. Good. <laughs> so I, I'm so excited to be here with Meg Lefauve and Lorian McKenna. Um, you guys probably know them from, you know, they, they met on Pixar and, and I know that a lot of our delegates out there have seen their bios. And I'm also really excited to have them here because they co-host an amazing podcast called The Screenwriting Life. Uh, I discovered them in the Facebook group who somebody you know, brought me into and it was just full of these amazing tips and then realized that they have a podcast. So I have been a sort of silent absorber of your knowledge for a long time. And I admit I'm a little terrified today, which I feel like I can admit because you guys are so amazingly honest. You know, your, your podcast and your Facebook group covers not just the, you know, the like the nuts and bolts of yes, here's how, you know, you can improve your writing or if you're struggling, like here's nuts and bolts things you can do, but also, the life and dealing with the constant ups and downs and the highs and lows and all of that and how to navigate that. 
Um, so thank you for that. And uh, if, if anybody isn't already aware of that podcast, go check it out. We'll be pu putting links all over the group and everything again more. <laughs> um, so I just, Inside Out, you know, as an example, we just saw the trailer. Something that's so um, impactful for me about that show is the subtlety. Like, it's a first of all, this talk is about emotional characters. I am rambling. Okay, Center. you're doing great. Good, you're doing great. great. I mean, I can admit something personal, and embarrassing that my allergies are driving me crazy right now. So if I am doing this, that's all it is. <laughs> I'm not doing anything else. It's my allergies. So. So perfect. Yeah. perfect. So um, I feel like we're always told to take our readers or our viewers on an emotional journey like that really at its heart. That's what we're hoping to achieve as as writers is to impact other people. And I feel like Disney and Pixar are often kind of renowned for that. It's, you know, maybe they're made for a younger audience. And by the way, language warning, you know, the, this is not made for a younger audience tonight. So yes, just, I, just I do tend everyone. to square, so <laughs> there you go. Um, and, and they just have these emotional moments. And the thing with Inside Out that struck me is, is the subtlety, like all of these characters portray emotions, and yet the actual emotions that you feel in watching them interact, there's, there's just such a subtle kind of balance between them. So like, like with joy and sadness, you know, I mean, obviously, their whole journey is completely intertwined, and you could not have the journey of one without the journey of the other. Um, so my question is, when you are first getting your characters for your project, like where where do you start? How do you know that your character is is the that you're starting in the right emotional place for the project, I guess is a very awkward way of saying that. Yeah, that's good. It's a good question. Um, you know, inside out is real is is Pete Doctor's movie. It's his story, and it, it's really based on his life. And when a director at Pixar wants to pitch um, their ideas of the movies they're thinking of, they really often, maybe always, start with the personal. So they pitch first why they want to tell the story from an emotional point of view. And Pete started with, I had a daughter who was goofy and she was the first one out to do her tap dance routine in front of people. And she was just this light, this joyous light. And then she turned 11 and I lost her and suddenly she retreated and she was sitting with her hair in front of her face and never looking at people. And my question is what happened to her? What happened to my daughter's joy? And I wanna go inside of her and find out. So already we're starting from an emotional place. So that doesn't mean that all of your films that you write have to be autobiographical in terms of plot or, or world or even the story, but emotionally, the most emotional stories have a piece of the writer in them that we as writers are tapping. It was a very vulnerable thing for Pete to admit that he lost his daughter and felt unable to reach her. You know, that's a vulnerable place to start. And I think you always want to start there. You always, you know, even if you're going in and pitching, I think the executives appreciate understanding why you particularly you're the writer and this is your story somehow, what is your emotional connection to it? Um, I think that's really important. I think it starts everybody off feeling much more comfortable 
um, about it that you will write something emotional and unique because it's from you. So I think that one of the most important things is to start from your own personal emotional investment in it. You know, Lauren and I often talk on the podcast about writing as an artist is a vulnerable experience. All art is makes you vulnerable. That is the point of it. It's an it's a personal process. Um, and it's as you're writing, you're going to things will come up and your job is to lean into them. What Lauren and I call lava because it can burn. It can feel very uncomfortable. Um, the, the job as you write and you find your characters is to lean into whatever comes up. It's a personal process. That doesn't mean you don't use archetype cards if you want to or however you want to start. Joy started as an archetype for sure. But then it's looking at that archetype and really imbuing her more with my questions about happiness and my own personal happiness and looking at Riley and her relationship with her parents and Joy as a parent to Riley in a certain extent in terms of my relationship as a parent to my children. All, you know, at Pixar, and Lorian can vouch for this, we spent hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks talking about our personal lives. Me talking about what it felt like to be an 11 year old girl and what it feels like to be a parent. And that, that is the, the, that's the fodder that we're bringing the story up from. So when people say, oh, how do you write a movie that's for kids but not speaking down to them? Well, because we're not thinking about for kids. We're thinking about human beings and really digging down into that mulch of our own personal uh, life experiences. And, yeah, and for Laura, sorry, go ahead. Oh, Lauren. so I, I mean, I always speak from the personal. Meg is such a good teacher. Um, I just tell my stories because I'm the expert in me. But um, right now I'm working on a pilot and I've come to the place with my script and my character. I'm like, it's done. But then I got some notes this morning and I'm realizing that I haven't fully allowed the character to um, be to be as lava-y as she needs to be. And that I can see the scenes in my pilot where I've put up little boulders for myself that keep me safe. And I realize I have to move those boulders and see what's behind them in order to really let my character be who she is. And so it's a process. I've been writing the script since November. And this is the second time I've been like, I'm done. And then I realize I'm not done because you know it's good enough, but it's not, grab you by the throat, amazing, powerful character work yet. And that's where I want to go. And um, so for me, it's about trusting that I can see those boulders when they get pointed out and believing in them. It's really hard. It's, uh, it's like something you have to keep doing and doing and doing in order to learn uh, where those boulders are and how you're protecting yourself as a writer because like Meg says, it's so vulnerable and this will probably trigger some personal stuff for me and I might need to, you know, take a walk or have a cry. Um, but in order to elevate my work, to elevate the script, I need to push through that. And it's really personal and I'm going to be mad and sad and happy. And I'm just really looking for the end when I get to say it was worth it. Um, so <laughs> aren't we all? <laughs> I, it's, uh, it's, it's like uh, you have to keep pushing yourself as an artist every single way. Like, I feel like I am Sisyphus and the boulder, right? <laughs> Both. I'm pushing down on myself and trying to push myself up the hill. And it's just this constant wherever you are in that swing. I, there's probably way more elegant analogies, but 
you know, mine is always in the pit, right? Like I'm trying to get out of the pit. Um, but yeah, it's just a super vulnerable experience. And yeah, at Pixar, we were always talking about what do you think? You know, there was a moment on one of the films I worked at, worked on, and the director was like, would you do this? Because there's a lot of question is, was the scene earned? And was it something appropriate to the character? And I was like, absolutely. And here's why. And it's in the film, not because of me, but because enough people related to it as something authentic to a real person, something a real person would do. And I think that's really um, important. Even if you have animated characters or you're writing a sci-fi space opera, it's re it's about real people and real emotion. I just rambled. I mean, that was a good <laughs> ramble. That was fantastic. I feel comfortable now. That was like the perfect segue into my next thing too, which was emotional honesty. Because I feel like sometimes in my pursuit personally um, of creating an emotional story, it's like, well, okay, something emotional needs to happen now. I'll just stick it in and that'll be fine, right? And it just comes out of nowhere and it doesn't it doesn't ring true. Like you're saying, you know, would would you do this? Yes, absolutely. Why? So do you have any tips for us to is it just a question of sending it out to people and getting their opinions? And they're like, mm, I don't know about that. Or is it you know, is there a way that we can also look at our own stuff and kind of realize, oh, you're forcing that you're you're not setting up the blocks that are going to build to that moment. I think both. I think it's always good to send out your work because as writers, as artists, there's blind spots. Uh, that just is how it is. Um, and you won't know your blind spot until sometimes somebody shines a light on it. So I always highly recommend sending out to trusted people, people who are in your corner and want you to succeed. I mean, there is always the unconscious self-saboteur in you that might send it to the person that you know will will shit all over it so that you can therefore be like, well, I'm not a writer. I knew it. You know, and, and you're <laughs> off the hook. Um, so be careful about that. When we talk about sending it out to people, we're assuming you're sending it out to people who are in your corner and will also tell you what they liked about it. But in terms of that emotional honesty, um, you know, writing is a process, right? We just had Ed Solomon on the show and he so beautifully said that the way he approaches writing is every morning he look, gets up and looks at his document and says, what is it now? And then he writes and what is it now? What is it now? And I just think that's so beautiful because it's constantly evolving, right? So you might have a draft where in your heart, you know, I don't know that that is ringing true, but I need her to do that there to get to this plot point. And I just I just feel this need to keep going that direction. But at some point, you know that that is not authentic. You get the notes. Then th that is the work of the writing in terms of what I do is I sometimes I go back to that scene and I will do the most authentic thing, even if it completely kills and wrecks all the other stuff going forward. You, that's the bravery. Artistry takes courage. It takes the courage to be vulnerable to start with and not judge it as sentimental, but let yourself be vulnerable. And then it takes the bravery to take something you've constructed and allow it to disintegrate because that scene is not authentic. All that work you did after that scene is in the script. It will, whether it is actually in the script or not, you had to do that. Your brain needed to get to the end to know what the beginning is. So that is all well done work, but you've got to go back and be brave and allow the whole thing to fall apart. When I was a producer, I would always, you know, I would always see the moment that the, the when in giving notes, when the poor writer saw the house of cards go boom, 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 boom. And I'd always be like, we're going to build it back. It's okay. 
So it's totally okay when you get that moment. It is actually, in my opinion, part of the process. If you have not gone through that, if you have not pushed to the point that your house of cards falls down, you are not down in it. You are not at the, the juicy bits. You are not pushing, as Pixar always wanted us to do, to fail fast. Fail fast. Why? Because push out to it. So be brave. Go back to that scene. And what would be the most authentic thing to do? And if you're like, well, the truth is, the most authentic thing to do would be for her to leave. Uh, have her leave. It's writing. Nothing's going to happen. And see where she goes. Just say, today I'm going to do it so that she leaves. And you may not end up having her leave, but you will discover something really important that that character is trying to tell you about leaving. That there's another way to have her leave and you can keep what you have or you can't keep what you have because everything from this point on is not authentic. So it is the bravery. And, you know, Pixar really taught me that because it's just an iterative process, man. <laughs> everything goes up and everything goes down over and over and over and over and over and over. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I wrote some of those scenes. Just so many times. Lorian would walk by and I'd be like, I cannot write this scene again. I and I'd can't. say, yes, you can. I Let's can't. do it. You've got I five minutes. Lorian. Let's go. And she'd be like, you have 10 minutes. And I'd be like, okay. Blah! It is yeah. an active process. It is not writing, in my opinion, yes, comes from your intellect, but it also comes from your body, from your heart, from your guts. And as you write, I want you to feel it in your body. I want you to feel the scene. I want you to be so deep in the scene, so in the moment with the character that you feel it. Because if you're writing it and feeling it, I promise you, when I read it, or your producer reads it, or your friend reads it, they will feel it too, because you felt it. So it is about just pushing into that and letting it go and doing lots of different versions. Um, and then there's intellectual things you can do that we can get into too. But it really is just about blow it up, blow it up and do the authentic thing. And if you really don't know what the authentic thing is, you can work with the people giving you notes. They might give you some versions of what could happen there. Be careful of that. Be sure that you it tones something in your body. You feel that when they say it. And the other thing I want to say real quick is, a lot of emerging writers have this judgment against emotion. They they don't want to be sentimental or they see emotion as cliche. And I was working with an emerging writer once and boy, she had a defense against sentimentality. And her her writing was really crisp and clean, but ultimately the scripts weren't emotional. And I said to her, okay, your job is to take a scene and write it as sentimentally as you can. I want it dripping off. I just want the sentiment dripping off the pages. And it was really hard for her to do. But you know what? It wasn't sentimental, that scene. It was emotional. And it was just this interior block that she has to emotion that, you know, when you start to break those blocks, other things will come up. That's why Lori and I are always talking about. You need your support around you. Um, but that's that's the work of writing. That is the work of artistry is to push into those moments because you're asking your character to have a catharsis and a catharsis is a big deal. It is a transformative experience. Well, guess who also has to have a catharsis when you write, in my opinion, you as the writer, you have to push yourself to the catharsis of, because if you're the first one, if you're not doing it as a writer, why should I as a reader or a viewer feel the catharsis if you're not feeling it. Um, you know, when when we were doing Inside Out, I had to write that scene where she where, where um, she comes back to her parents after she ran, ran away 
and says basically to her parents, you want me to be happy, but I'm not. And I had to write that, I think, in maybe an hour. We were going so fast. And the good thing about having to write it so fast is I didn't think about it. And I didn't, any, any of the intellectual blocks and doubts and judgment and that critic and all the reasons to tamp it down, tamp it down, tamp it down. Sometimes the louder your critic gets, oh, you're right on it. You should absolutely do it, right? But I didn't have time for that. And I just was like, and I just puked it out. It went, it got boarded. The next time I see that scene, I'm in a screening, I'm in a theater with 300 people watching the boards of this movie. And I, <laughs> honestly, when it came up, I was like, oh my God, that is, I didn't even know until that moment, that is what I wanted to say to my parents when I was 11 years old. And I wasn't brave enough to say it, but Riley's brave enough to say it. You want me to be happy, but I'm not. And I remember sitting in the theater like, oh my God, I'm fired. I'm so fired. I felt naked. I felt naked. But, and, we, and the lights came on and nobody clapped. It was dead quiet. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so fired. And I have to go up to the brain trust right now with Andrew Stanton and, and, and all these people. And I was just like, oh my God, this is, I, what do I do? So I ran to the bathroom <laughs> to get myself together. And I was like, what am I going to, and I walk in the bathroom and the women in there are all crying. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm not getting fired <laughs> because nobody clapped because they were having such an emotional experience. But again, I was having an emotional experience because it was so organic to me. And, and it was such a truth. It was such an emotional truth to my experience in the world. There, there you go, Lorian. There is my, uh, I rambled there. You can. No, I think what I was thinking a lot about when you were talking, you know, other than your brilliance, is no. this idea, this question we get, I think as writers a lot is, how do you kill your darlings? You know, these scenes that you're attached to, these moments. And I wonder, you know, we've come up with a name for it. We, we talk about it. And I wonder if that's just naming a block, an excuse, right? Because when you blow it up, you have to, blow it up. Like everything is scattered. And what I'm noticing just on this project that I'm writing now is it is the same thing I started writing about, but I'm just getting more clarity. And a big part of that is getting rid of those little moments, those things that I was attached to, you know, my darlings, but I am not attached to them. I mean, I, of course, it's something I have to work through, but I wonder how much of an excuse it is not to change things because we're so attached to those darlings. Um, I don't know, Meg, what do you think about no, that? No, I think or that's Savannah? really smart. I think that's really smart. I do think that sometimes we decide that those are darlings because we're afraid, A, we won't come up with anything out that good again, and B, because they keep us safe. And oh my God, it's so funny. This moment is so funny and I just love it. And it's actually unconsciously keeping you safe from what is actually bubbling up in you that wants to come out right now. But you're clinging to this thing that's your darling because it's keeping you away from that. I mean, you know, getting notes and moving into your emotional uh, writing life, both of those things can feel like survival. Your survival instinct can kick up and it can land in all kinds of different places. And I think for sure, believing that it's a darling um, might, it might be, it might be, it might be exactly where you need to go and you need to kill it in order to see what's underneath there. I think that's such like to me, just this idea of fail fast in combination with blowing everything up is is kind of blowing my mind right now because it's something that 
I, I guess unconsciously, like I find that in video games, you know, you can fail a million times and it's, you get better each time, you know, you all get more cohesive as a group and then you can attack it and you can overcome the dragon. And I feel like with writing, it's, it, oh, it kind of goes back to my school training of try to succeed, you know, but if you, but you should stick with what you're good at kind of thing. Right. And so like with your darlings, it's like, oh, this is a cute, funny moment. I'm going to keep it because I could be the cute, funny person. And then you're right. You get kind of trapped by that and you don't ever dive yeah, into the lava. <laughs> yeah. That's really, really a huge thing to, for your brain to understand that this isn't school. This isn't even a job like uh, you might think of a job this is art and art is about failure art is i mean ha my husband's also a painter i can't tell you how many quote unquote failed paintings there are laying all over my house in terms of things that he, he got stuck on or he doesn't know what to do with it or you know he rips he literally will rip it up i mean when i was at school my friend was an artist and she was like okay you want to know what my final was my final for the class was we had to put out everything we we created in the class and rip it up and I was like, what? Oh my like, gosh. <laughs> that was the lesson that art is not permanent. It is not a permanent thing. It's an evolving thing. And that there's more inside of you. That you, if you cling too desperately to something, nothing else can grow. Nothing else can come in. You're not going to evolve. You're actually deadening it. Right. And I or if you're if you're somebody who's not writing because you're afraid well if you're if you've been chosen by the universe in my opinion as the sacred vessel for these stories you should you're going to get really like gunked up and mad and angry and you know decide you have to move and all kinds of stuff and then meanwhile just go write because it, it is a flow writing is a flow it's an evolving thing it's not like a class where you wrote your essay and now it's done it's not like i wrote my outline and now i take my script and i write it from that outline no, that is not how real writing works. I understand that's even how they teach writing, but that is not how it works. Like, I can't tell you how many outlines I write. I write an outline and I throw it away and I write another one and I throw it away. And now it's kind of an outline scriptment because there's dialogue coming in because the characters want to talk, but I'm still kind of thinking about it. And then the scriptment shows me, crap, I think that this is actually not even the main relationship of this movie because this new character who showed up out of nowhere he wants to come in and he's got something to say. And holy crap, he's my favorite character. I didn't even know he was in this movie. Okay, go again. Now put that character forward or whatever so that I there is a lot of iteration. And then you go to first draft and you might throw it out. I mean, that's what's crazy. I mean, you might do all that iteration and now you've got a first draft and you're like, okay, it's totally the wrong main character. I mean, this happens all the time in Hollywood where they realize they have the wrong main character. I mean, it's not uh, this, what you're, what I'm talking about is not because you're an emerging writer or because you're new or beginner. This is writing. This is how it goes. Yes, of course, once it's your job, you have deadlines and now you have to do this within the deadlines. Um, but that is a, another higher level that you will get to and that you can do, but it is an iterative process. And that is how you get to the good stuff you know, I remember John Lasseter used to say, you know, the best ideas are the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth idea. It's not the first, second, third idea. Like you think that that's your best idea and it feels like the best idea, but it probably isn't. It probably is just where you started and where everybody else would start. Now do the opposite of that. Now do something completely different just, just to just to keep it going, keep it alive, to keep it alive. 
there was a scene on Up, I was a script supervisor on Up, and there was a scene uh, towards the end of the movie that was probably rewritten, I, I don't know, hundreds of times. You know, I think by the time we finished recording it, I, I was on line 1000, you know, you number each line and you keep going up. So um, it was just this scene that we could not crack that, well, the, Pete and Bob could not crack and the editor would work on it, and the story artist and the head of story. And you know, we were all trying to work on it. And it was this long scene and years probably were spent on it. And then at the end, the end, the answer was so simple. The scene is so short and so concise and so clear, but it took years to figure it out. And yeah, we were failing fast and a lot, but it still took a long, long time. And now, now I watch the movie and I'm like, oh yeah, of course, obviously. Can you tell but, us what that scene was? Um, I think so. It's, uh, it's a scene called Muntz's Lair and it's when um, uh, Muntz comes and confronts Carl at the end. At, you know, when he, the house and he takes the bird back with him, right? There's that. And it was this, you know, trying to figure out that Muntz was actually the dark mirror of Carl, but figuring out because Muntz is such a great character. And so figuring out his motivation and his wants, and they would go off in such different directions, but then always it was about bringing it back to Carl, the main yeah. character, yeah. always ha like you could do so many crazy, amazing, wonderful things with Muntz, but how is he, how is the story about Carl? And then ultimately, right, it's, it's figuring out how Muntz and Carl crank against each other. And it was this short, short scene. Muntz says this one zinger, Carl's bummed out, right? Takes the bird. Um, if I'm remembering it right. I, <laughs> anyway, but I remember like that scene, Muntz's lair was, you know, it that it's still triggering when I when I say that phrase out loud, even though that was like way back, you know, I don't know how many years ago, but um, but then the solution was so clear and obvious. Now you watch the movie, you're like, it couldn't be any other thing. But what a great tip! What a great tip! Because oh. the other tip you're saying is that um, it always has to come back to the main character, and it yeah. always has to come back to their catharsis. Yes. And what role does this person play in their catharsis? You know, when I worked for I worked for Jodie Foster. And she would always say as an actress who's the protagonist, why this antagonist for my character? Why is this the only person in the world who could have come to my character and cracked her open and changed her? Why? Why this antagonist for this protagonist, right? So, you know, it's everything to make an emotional antagonist is another kind of work, right? Which is the dark side of yourself, I think, that 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 the dark side of all of us and yes the mirror of your protag of your protagonist but every character in the movie is traveling on the same emotional thematic with the protagonist and has it all has to come back to push on and change and transform the protagonist if you're doing a transformative movie but it's such a great tip that everything has to come back to the protagonist and now i'm remembering that i've conflated two different scenes once is lair and trap two different sequences and trying to because it was so long ago i'm so sorry <laughs> So oh, anyone who worked on Up With Me is like, you've got the wrong sequence you're describing, you ding dong. So, but it was Muntz's Lair was the long, the right. you know, the long scene. Anyway, and it was, I think it was 1062 was the number of times we recorded dialogue in that scene. Um, but yes, it's it always- those movies are so good. There's a lot of iteration. Oh yeah. I mean, the script stuff, you know, I, I don't know how many versions that script ran through my 
my typey type fingers, you know, we always had alts too, right? So in a sequence that was written, we would always have, um, it could be this line, but it could also be these three or four or five, six different lines that we would have the actors record. And then when we got back to editorial, you they would plug in the different versions to see, you know, what was the best emotional way to tell that story? Um, because even when you're working with professional actors, and it's animation, you still want to try things. We were trying things up until the very last minute. You yeah, know, and so. that's not what they do in live action to serve no. everybody. Like you don't do no. all of live action. You as the writer choose what you believe is the best line yes. and what line it needs to be. But yeah, feature animation is a little different. <laughs> no, no, I'm just trying to clarify that there's a difference. Yes, policy. you can't write alts in your live action script. People will yeah. be like, figure what it out, you, choose. Yeah, what like, is you're the, the writer, yeah. what are you yes. doing? But it, it was... I don't know. How did you feel about having alts, having to write alts when you were writing? At first, I didn't like it at all because, mm. again, I'm coming from live action. So I'm like, but I chose the line that I think works. Why do I have to write? You want alts to it? There's no alts. That's the line. But once you understand the process that you're in and how um, con how what a what a group, it, it, it's a very collaborative process and it is an iterative process. And then I loved it because I could just throw out the code about this, try this, try this. And it, it again, it became much more alive the the actor meeting the director meeting the scene meeting what we the drawings uh meeting the character design that just came in right, right. or whatever yeah. so it was a much more alive process but that's animation because you're making it as you're doing it all at the same time yeah so when you're crafting <laughs> these characters no I, i'm loving all of this so thank <laughs> you when you're crafting these characters and you often talk in your podcast about like putting them in the lava that you know that it's not you're not getting down to the like raw <laughs> there you go oh look at that oh, there it is that's so funny so when do you have like tips for us to delve into our character like actual you know exercise like okay i've got to get away from my script but i can i can dive deeper into this by doing this do you have actual things that either of you use maybe maureen can i come to you first and in yeah, your I, own process anything i do the work on the page in the in the scenes i mean part of it is like i'll talk to meg and you know and she'll ask me the why questions right why why, you know, I don't know, Meg, we can do it right now as an example, if you <laughs> do a little workshop, you know, you, you know, I'll have a character run out of the room and then Meg, what would you say? I'd say, why does she need to run out of the room? Because she's scared. Why is she scared? She thinks if she stays, she'll say something stupid. Why would she say something stupid? Because she thinks she's stupid. Why does she think she's stupid? Because her mother always told her she was stupid. Oh, we're getting closer now. Right. So it's not quite the, down to the bottom. And I don't want to go too far because we don't want to go into more psychology. No, but, this isn't my script. This is just an example. But it's like, like <laughs> then you get into sort of like the core. There's a trauma there of of connecting it. And um, so that really helps. So then when I go back to the page, I'm like, oh, wow, she has this trauma. So then I can. And then I. um I just write. I just get into a scene and have my character talk and see how far she'll go and see how, like what Meg says, how it feels in my body. Um, I, you know, I, I used to teach and we used to do a lot of writing exercises and I think they're fantastic. I don't find they're very helpful for me right now, um, but I know there are lots of great ones. Um, but my personal process is I have to sit down 
and open a document and write it into a scene. I have to believe that what I'm doing is going to somehow inform the script I'm wor working on. Like it's a trick. Um, because I know most of the stuff I'm working these like, you know, I'll write like a 30 page scene and you know, the last five lines are what I'm actually looking for. It just takes, a, and yes, I can write a 30 page scene because I love, you know, just having my characters talk, but it'll take me a long time to find out that what she really is afraid of. And maybe it's not that her mom said she was stupid. Maybe it's something else, you know, and that was my intellectual answering those questions. I need to find what the emotional piece of it is. Um, yeah, because emotion doesn't necessarily communicate to you through intellect. Um, and that's why you're an artist because you're a dreamer and it's kind of, it, it might be coming to you through the dream and the characters start, might tell, start telling you. So I, if I get stuck, I have the character write to me in their own voice in the I position and she starts telling me stuff. The whys always work, five whys and you're gonna get down to something interesting. It, and the other thing to think about is, um, so when, like, let's just use the example Lori and Gabe of, of why, well, because her mother told her she was stupid. So then you've got a character whose belief system is that she's stupid. She believes that she's stupid. And your job as a, as a writer now is to prove that true at the beginning. If that's what she believes, that's what we have to believe. What, what, how is she stupid? And you have to get really specific. What kind of stupid is she, right? And, and what is that and how does that feel, right? And what does that look like? And what kind of behavior does that create? And, you know, actors love to create levels, right? And you need to give them that. So behind in her guts, she feels stupid. You deeply innately know that you've shown us and we've experienced with her a moment where it came up and she was exposed as stupid. And then you're showing me the mask that she uses to keep away from that, to keep her safe from that. So you show me the survival instinct, which is what most people would tell you her character is. But because we're in the audience and we're with you, the creator, you're showing us also already in act one, that piece that's behind her. So let's use joy. Joy's belief is that sadness is not a great thing for Riley. Okay. When that happened, I was like, oh my God, Pete, how are we going to do this? Everybody walking into the theater is going to know that's not true. Everybody's had a good cry, even kids. Right. But I have to somehow in the writing, in the expression of the first act, get you so deeply into her emotional point of view that something is that sadness is bad for Riley. I mean, there's an entire montage sequence about it, right? Where we literally sat around for days, like what is the worst thing sadness could do? And like cry at school one. So you, you have to deeply know that, that this is what Joy believes and that she has to drive because there's a whole scene. Why does Joy believe she has to be happy all the time? Because when I first came in, one of the biggest problems they had in their very rough beginnings is that nobody likes Joy. Well, nobody likes somebody innately happy all the time. They're totally annoying. They don't even feel real because that's not a human. But Joy's not happy all the time. Joy believes that sadness is bad for Riley. And she's told by mom in the scene where she sits, mom sits down in the sleeping bag with Riley and says, thanks for being our happy girl. This has been a really hard time. We're really so relieved how happy you are. Well, what is that? That's an edict. That's a belief to that child. You need to be happy right? You're going to get a note that's really unlikable for mom to do. I was like a mother line on that scene because this is the belief system being laid down for the audience and for Joy. Joy, you need to drive and keep sadness off this thing. I'm with her emotionally. Keep sadness from touching the core memories. We have to create the emotional experience of how bad, what are the stakes to those core memories being touched by sadness? They're emotional stakes, right? So I've laid down the belief system, right? And then she goes out into the mind 
And there was a scene where Goofball Island falls. And in an early cut, there was a problem with this moment for Joy. People were like, I like, I don't like Joy's response to it. And I realized it's because there was a, when I saw it in early cuts, when they brought me in to take a look, I was like, well, look, we're not having an emotional reaction from joy of panic and vulnerability when those things fall down. They fall, it falls down and she goes, I know where to go. And I was like, we have to feel the desperation of joy and all the vulnerability of, oh my God, I'm losing my kid. It is just, she is disintegrating in front of me. What am I gonna do? And then beat, beat, I know what to do. And she's her chipper self again because her happiness is her protection against feeling vulnerable. That is Joy's MO. So learning that, how do we learn that about Joy? I just started with what does Joy believe about the world and what does she want? She wants Riley to be happy. She wants Riley to be connected to Riley. Well, what's getting in her way of that want? Sadness is getting in the way of that want. So knowing those beliefs is really, really important. And it's somehow sometimes about yourself knowing what you believe about the world and what you believe is possible for you and asking yourself, is that true? Like, have you been told you don't write emotional characters and now you've got this belief I don't write emotional characters? Well, is that true? You can't? I don't think that's true. You're a human being. Of course you can. So sometimes it's just getting to know yourself too and what these belief systems are. And that often the, the thing we're asking the main character to change, the reason it's a catharsis is because it's often their most skilled self. Joy is really, really good at being happy. It's, it's the one thing she knows how to do. And we're asking her to not do that. It's a big thing to ask of this character. So Th those are some ways. So I, I do, I, I, you can do morning pages where you get up and you just write and write and write anything comes into your head. Do three, three sides of a piece of paper every morning and watch what comes up and watch how it comes up. Um, I, I, I ask characters questions on our Facebook page. I listed a bunch of questions you can ask your main character. What is their happiest time? What is their most fearful time? What is the time they felt betrayed? What is the time that they made somebody really mad? Those are gonna start to pull it up for you. Um, so it's becoming emotionally intimate with your main character. And that sometimes just takes time. It's interesting listening to you talk, Meg, and this happens to me a lot. You know, you, you, uh, what happens to me is a lot. I get reminded of things that I know, but have forgotten or rejected like, oh, right. <laughs> what is my character afraid of? Right. I wrote down belief system and mask as protection. Right. So I, I, I'm really struggling right now in my project. You know, I, what did I say when you said, how do you do this? I'm like, I don't do these, these um, exercises. I just write the scene and I'm realizing that's a defense mechanism because what I really need to be doing is asking those questions that Meg is asking of my characters. I need to sit and listen to my character talk to me. I need to find out what her belief system is explicitly and not go on my gut. Like I am such a gut writer. Uh, that I often don't go up into the intellectual to figure out what those definitions are so that I can inform her when I go into the em emotional place. So I think my answer before was just a big fat lie to not do the work. Um, but I but I think that like what's so amazing about being an artist, being a writer, being a creative person is that there are these amazing opportunities to be reminded and to learn all the time. And and it's, they usually come in really unexpected ways. I mean, on the podcast, I'm always writing down things that Meg says. Like it's oh, always please. like, oh, right. 
We, um, I wrote so many notes when, Ron, when, when we just did the Ed Solomon thing. Yes. It was unbelievable. Yes. So I just think that's uh, a part of the journey. And, you know, I'm feeling very vulnerable right now admitting that, right? Like, here's Here we how come. I'm a hack. But um, no. uh, here's how I'm professional and fancy and like, no, okay, I'm not. Okay, let's just do this. Did you see the judgment that came up so fast? I'm a hack. So yes. that judgment is protecting you because yes. you're feel like your your survival mechanism is starting to go wah, 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 yeah. right. But you're yeah. a human being, so the question is for your character: what's her survival mechanism? Yeah. You know, I was just doing this with my 17 year old because every time he has something proud to tell me about himself, he immediately undercuts it. I do that. So I I'm can't take a compliment. I'm like. Undercut, yes. undercut, honey. You just undercut. That was the undercut. And then we saw his dad doing it. So I'm just saying <laughs> we all do stuff, right? Like, um, so yeah. but this, this is, is the this process, is, right? Like I have to, I mean, part of it is right being willing to confront yourself and what your belief systems are and your mask and all those things, what Meg is talking about. And it's terrifying. And, you it's, know. and, and it, sometimes you're going to be too much in your head and sometimes you're going to be too much in your gut and it's this constant back and forth. And sometimes you're going to be down in the details of your script and sometimes you need to get 30,000 feet. Yeah. Like that back and forth is also part of the iteration. And by the way, what we're talking about, it can be any genre. Like it can be the space opera. It can be the tiny little indie movie. It can be anything because we're talking about human beings, right? I mean, I the Marvel movies, I think, are so popular for many, many reasons, one of which is just how human those characters are, even as they're superheroes, that, that, that they really have a wonderful touch at keeping them so wonderfully flawed and human in the humor, in what they're up against, in their fighting with each other, in their wants, in their flaws, you know, it, it, it done so, so well. I just think that that so it doesn't, we're not talking about like little indie movies when we talk about this stuff. Um, because you can write the big space opera and have all the great set pieces, but I promise you they need the emotion because that is why they're gonna remember it and hand it to somebody else to read. They're gonna hand it to them because of the concept. But if you wanna stay on as the writer and they're not like, bye, we just buy your concept is because of your guts are in there. And yourself is in there. And all of the stuff we're talking about is also in there. And the space opera is this beautiful, larger metaphor, dream metaphor for what's happening to the main character. Is, it, is a planet breaking apart? Well, what? how is your main character's life breaking apart? Right? It, it's, it's just, does your character lost any sense of home? Well, how, okay, then, then the metaphor is he's literally jettisoned from the planet, right? So whatever, I don't, I'm totally, I don't even know what I'm talking <laughs> I'm just totally, I'm going to go down into my metaphors and get stuck there. Sisyphus. Um, but you know, I just down, to down. understand that all of the action and those set pieces, your job as the writer is to keep your brain also on, these are giant metaphors for the character and where they are in the moon in the screenplay at that moment. And there's a reason a dinosaur just came out because she's she's facing something uh, very overwhelming and primal in herself, whatever. Um, so that's just just another thought on it. Yeah, some, sometimes it feels like the bigger the story that you're trying to ground, like the more guts you have to ground it with because otherwise everyone's just like, oh, CGI, cool. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, they get overwhelmed with all the, the action or, um, you know, we remember Star Wars, yes, because of the, the, of the story, but also because of Luke and, and 
and Princess Leia and Han Solo. Like they are the and 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 the and the amazing mentor. Like the characters are the ones we fell in love with and wanted to see over and over. The other thing that I'm taking from you both it, that for me is like, sorry, I'm getting so many personal takeaways. Sorry, everyone. Okay, <laughs> like, go. Yeah. Personal takeaways. Yeah. Um, but like so often we think of um, emotional journeys of the characters as internal. And then we're told, you know, don't have a passive character. You, you do a great podcast about finding your character with agency, you know, finding your character's agency and, and just all the examples you've given, even your made up person, this person that's stupid, She's taking action because of the emotion. So yes. it's, it, it's not separate. It's like totally no. intertwined. Yes, because our action is based on our survival instinct. And it's based on what we want. And often what we want is going to lead us to what we need, whether we like that experience or not. And again, for all the emerging writers out there, I just always have to say it. Your job in act two is to beat the crap out of your main character, to make it as hard as possible and then they have a response to it and they choose. And that's how I know who they are. People lie. Dialogue, yes, it tells us who they are, especially if it's a culture or a colloquialism or a certain, but really what they do tells me who they are as a person, right? Beyond their culture, beyond their, their setting in their world, what they do, right? So I always, and actors are all about behavior, man. When you start working with them, it's all about what is my character doing? Right. So, yes, just you, you, you might say, well, my character is shy and feels like they're stupid. That doesn't mean they haven't created an incredible way to keep not so that you don't know that they feel that way. Right. That is what a character is. This, the specificity of how they keep that uh, ball in the air of how they keep that character active. Um, that's the fun stuff. How does a, sh a super shy person have to go and do this? What, what do they do? Why are that's why they're the hero because they came up with such a fascinating, unique way to do it. Uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge talks about giving your character three obstacles. So there's that wonderful scene in uh, an episode of season one of Fleabag where she's at the bank trying to get a loan, but it's hot. So she takes off her sweater and like flashes him, and then he misunderstands that. There's like a lot of things going on in that scene that, um, are sort of forcing her to do things that have re repercussions, right? So if it's hot, different characters are gonna react in different ways, right? She, of course, tries to take off her sweater, forgets that she's not wearing a shirt underneath, right? So I I, I feel like I need to go put that in all my scripts now. How? What are three things that are um, creating pressure on the character and will, and then the character will respond in a unique way that informs who they are? And, and, it's a response and they're reactive, but they're actually, I don't know, Meg, what, 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 is, what do you think of that? Like you, you have a room that's hot, so you're going to have a character that's responding to it, but they're also, but then to, you know, Fleabag lifts her shirt up and then it's right, what she does after that, right? But the reason that works is because of how vulnerable she is and how badly she needs that loan. So, so she's when you trying to get the loan. Desperate, yeah. She desperately need the loan or you lose your coffee shop and under the coffee shop is a metaphor for your friend. Mm -hmm. There's all this deep stuff going on emotionally. And oh my God, you desperately need this and you just flash the guy. Like there's there's ramifications to flashing him versus it's just an incident and funny and we're moving on. Right. It, it, it's the need for the loan that sets the narrative, right? And the objective 
that we're rooting for and in and the stakes are clear so that now as you throw stuff at her, we get to see who she is and how she handles it. I mean, you know, you can go look at different characters doing interviews um, and Aaron Brockovich, the opening of that movie and that interview is spectacular because it tells us who she is and how desperate she is to get a job. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's both. I think the want is always there underneath as you start throwing things at them. And I think Fleabag is a brilliant example too, because, you know, I used to hear it, not so much anymore, but the, the prevailing kind of theory was you've got to have your main character be likable. And I think, especially with female characters, now it's starting to shift with things like Fleabag. I mean, she is a mess. She is an unapologetic mess. And in that moment, you know, you're going, come on, just don't flash the guy. You really hope that she cannot dig herself deeper. And of course she's gonna dig herself deeper because that's who she is. And she, you know, does not have her life together and it's gonna come out at moments like that. I mean, isn't that always the way it's like, when you're really stressed about something and you cannot afford to have coffee on your shirt or whatever, that's the moment that it's going to hit you. It's not going to be on a day when you have an extra shirt with you. It's going to be the one day you didn't bring your extra shirt with you. Well, it's funny because all characters have that vulnerability because nobody wants to see a perfect person. There's nothing more boring on the world to watch than a perfect person. And those movies about perfect people, we're skewering them or we're setting them up as the bad guys. So the next time you decide you have to be perfect, think about that. But um, I, I think that likable and unlikable is tricky, right? Like um, it absolutely does exist, especially for female characters. I think the final frontier of quote unquote likability is beauty and thinness. Um, I can't wait for us to be brave enough to have more main characters who aren't thin and gorgeous. Even, I just, even books that are written where the main character's psychological, emotional makeup is because she's not a beauty. And what do they do? They cast a freaking model. And I'm just like, I don't get it. Why does she have to be something that is pretty to look at for all of us? That's not her character. Um, so I do have something about that in terms of what is actually likable and unlikable. Um, Fleabag for me works because she is so relatable and and vulnerable. She's, she's a mess, but in her mess, she's so vulnerable and still want something. As much as she's saying she doesn't, she is trying to keep this cafe going and she's trying to keep this secret down, right? She's literally, she's working so hard to keep the trauma down. Um, there are other unlikable characters who are anti-heroes, which is very different. An anti-hero, you don't think you're supposed to like them. Like uh, Black Panther, right? That is, I think, one of the best portrayals of an anti-hero, right? You, you're rooting for him. You understand why he's, the bad guy. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. I think the best anti-heroes still are coming from a very human place that I can relate to. So they're like taking some part of me and making it this external thing that I'm like, wow, and yet they're so good at it, right? There's still super skill in these anti-heroes and you know, that that's also so thrilling to see. Like, oh my god, he's doing it so well and it, it's almost, you know, it's almost makes you nervous, right? I think there are bad anti-heroes. I just watched a show that just came, that just dropped that I just found repulsive uh, because they are asking me to relate and care about a person who they've given me no reason to think of them as even human. They're so what they're doing is so so bad, and the and it, the story's not rooting anywhere. And it just I I, I just felt like it was clever for clever's sake um, versus. Um, who do I care about? Even you can care about an anti-hero. You can care about an unlikable character, right? Um, so I don't is it likable or that you care about them, right?
I think that's the difference for me. Yeah, I think Glow did a really great job in the pilot of the introduction of that main character because you know what she wants, right? She's in a man's world. She wants to be an actor. She's not going to get it. And then the next scene is her sleeping with her best friend's husband, which is disgusting, super unlikable, right? But because she wants it so much and I'm already like rooting for her, I'm relating to her want. It's so deep and visceral and the, the challenge is so real. And then I'm sort of like, okay, now I'm in, I'm into her. I buy it. You know, she could do pretty much anything now. Uh, I thought yeah. that was just, um, a, just a really successful way, you know? And then I'm like, did they set it up like that? How many versions of the script did it get like that? Did the studio give her those notes? Like, how did it get that clean right off the bat? You know, and I think we watch movies, we see TV shows and we think, oh, you know, we get the scripts. You know, we're like, oh, this is how it was written, right? But how <laughs> how did it get there? I fall into that. Like, I just read the script for the pilot for Ted Lasso. And I'm like, it's so clear. It's all right there on the page. You know, but like, how did that happen? I want to I wanna hear the story of the late nights and the notes and the iterations and all those scraps of paper flying everywhere. Because that's, you know, I, I doubt it was just written that way. I mean, yay for them if it was brilliant right but the idea that that exists i think is this we hold it up as this possible i do as this possibility one day i'm going to sit down and just typey type and oh my god it's brilliant you know if i did it one time though i'll never be able to do it again right it's like a one-shot thing but i, I still have it in my head and i think it's because we've gone to movies and we've seen tv all our lives well, I think and in the seventies and eighties there was this auteur idea that these auteur yeah. filmmakers just you know spoke their truth and it just came out. And I, I think there's some resid residue yeah. still to yeah. this auteur idea. And you know, we worked at Pixar. There are there are amazing geniuses working at Pixar. Yeah. I mean, true brilliance. They've won multiple Academy Awards, and their first drafts suck just like everybody else's because <laughs> that's the process. Yes, the process of a first draft is this is all the stuff that doesn't work. So, and I also want to say in terms of what we're talking about, emotional characters, you know, writing is a craft and it is an art. So like any craft and art, it doesn't just happen, boom, once. What we're talking about is write again and again and again. Okay, you took that script as far as you can, write another one, write another one. That's a writer. Or are you a person who have you have one story to tell and you really just want to get this story out into the world? That's totally fine, absolutely legitimate. I don't know that that's writing and being a writer though. Being a writer is knowing that your skill level and their ability to layer and your ability to see it and your ability to feel it and your ability to get it happens because you're writing and you're doing iterations and different scripts. Like I love, I'm a teacher. I love to teach. We do this, the podcast, but ultimately the only way any of the information that we're talking to you about today actually has impact is if you do it. It's the doing that changes the brain. Listening does not shift the brain. The doing of it shifts the brain. So don't judge yourself too harshly. If what you're writing, you don't feel like it's where it needs to be or it's not emotional. Well, first of all, welcome. That's writing. Congratulations. And congratulations. You're with all of us. And second, yeah, you might be emerging. You might have only written a couple of scripts so far. That's the fun. You got to write again and again. And I promise, I promise you, if you set your mind to it and you commit and you dedicate to writing, you will get better and better and better. You start to see things you didn't see before. You're going to see story in a different way. You're going to see characters in a different way. You're getting notes. You're going again and again. 
that is the process. And I promise you, every time you sit down, it may be hard. There may be days that you're not inspired. And it's just like, I just got to climb the mountain. Sit there and climb the mountain. Welcome to writing. When you work for a living, you're not inspired every day. <laughs> Half the time you're like, I just have to write something today. So you write it, right? And sometimes in that fatigue, that is when the emotional stuff really actually starts to come out. In the Because your brain knows that you have committed to this and that it's safe to let it out. So I really want to encourage you to write and write and write. And, and this stuff will come online. It will come online. See, it's so interesting because I'm a tango dancer originally. I've been dancing since I was 16. And it's, you know, sometimes that's great. And sometimes it's not because as a dancer, like there's this thing, you, you reach a certain level and then you have the creativity, right? You've got to learn to walk before you can learn to fly, right, with a partner. And it's like at writing, you know, with tango, you can kind of judge. There's like certain steps and things you can learn as kind of Lego blocks before you just get to just make it up with whoever right. you're dancing with and interpret the music. And with writing, it's like, at what point have I, you know, it's just, it's again with tango, you know, I mean, when you, when you're at the top, it's like the very first thing you learn to do is walk. And then when you're at the top, and you study with maestros, they're like, you don't know how to walk. You know, we yes. need to go back to this the and I, feel like, yes. I know. I feel like Every time I sit down, just... I'm like, what is writing? What is story? <laughs> what are ever, words? How does anybody ever write a script? How is that yeah. possible? What is a script? Because, <laughs> I mean, we, we, boy, at Pixar, we would be spend eight-hour day, and at the end of the day, Ronnie Del Carmen would go, why are we in the mind? And I'd be like, yeah, don't ask that question. Oh my God. But he was right because we'd kind of gotten off of the, of the core of it. So um, yes, with writing, how do you know those steps? You know, so definitely TV writing is a little different. I think there are steps. There are more, there is a more clear path in TV writing because you know, you're an assistant in a room taking notes for those writers. And then you get given a freelance episode because you've been writing your samples on the side at night. I have a mentee who just got a job at an agency and she's like, oh my God, I have to write after work. I'm like, oh yes, you do. I warned you about this. I warned you that this is our job that you have. To, yes, you have to write after work. And you have to write on the weekends because I'm waiting for the script. I don't care that you got a job. So you have to have the discipline to be writing. And then, but eventually in TV, you get a freelance episode. Now you get staffed. Now you're working your way up. Now you have enough chops and enough understanding of the process. You're going to be write your own show. You're becoming a showrunner. Like there is this tiered system to almost train people up into those jobs. Not everybody does that. Showrunners come in from features, and but they're usually paired with somebody right now to help them through that process. Um, features is a little different. It's a little crazier because it is completely self motivated. It is completely self-driven. There is no stairs. There's no ladder. It is about writing samples and about writing again and again and again and again. And how many drafts did you do of that script? And did you get stuck? We'll go to the next one. How much feedback are you getting? Are you getting feedback only from the same people? Time to broaden out the feedback, get more, get more help, um, be daring, try new things. Eventually, I do think you get to a script that the responses you're getting are things like, I loved this. I loved this. I, and they start talking about, I love this and I love this and I love this. Now, will that script be made? Maybe not, because maybe the purpose of that script was to get you an agent and who got you a writing assignment. And it's a, a, this beautiful sample that you're using. Like I wrote a spec TV pilot about a guy who keeps a girl in a box under his bed. And that's what got me the Captain Marvel job. I know, crazy, right? But it did because uh, they didn't know at Marvel as they read it, what the heck was going to happen next. Um, so, 
there's it's not as clear, but I do think that it's in the the notes you're getting back that start to tell you you're you're, you're you've got some samples now that are solid. And certainly people like me or people in the industry can tell you that's a solid sample, right? That that's something you can go out with. And if you don't have access to that, just think about just the people who are reading your scripts or I know that there's people, some people pay for coverage. I don't know if that's a good idea or not, but you know, uh, what kind of response are you getting back? Are you getting, this is strong. I loved this. And, and they're giving details. Now, you know, you're, you're really getting close or you're there. I don't know. Well, Lauren, what do you think? I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I think, and you know, there's also the possibility that, uh, that people don't follow those steps, right? That um, I agree with you about features and, uh, but you know, with TV, it's a little bit like, I know those steps are real, but not everyone does them. <laughs> no, if so, you don't, but if you don't, yeah. they're going to put a showrunner with you because yes. they're not going to hand you a show and you've never yeah. been, you don't know a room, you don't have oh, a room, you don't know how to, yeah. you know, you know, when you're in TV, it's so fast. Like I loved it. I, they were literally like, the network was like, let's do a show on this. And then suddenly you're writing an outline and suddenly people are knocking your doors, going to snakes are downstairs. You want to pick one out? And you're like, what is happening? This is going so fast compared to features, which are just a bit yes. uh, yeah. slow. So you've, you've talked now about, you know, basically finding this support network, you know, finding people that you can send your script to. Uh, um, so, I mean, do you think that should be primarily other writers? Does it help you if it's like, if you should we join local filmmaking groups? You know, where where do you think like the most valuable feedback comes from? Does that make sense? Go ahead, Lori. Well, I was for me personally, it comes from people that I trust, their sense of sense of story and their experience. Like my husband is one hundred percent supportive of me, but he does not understand why I keep changing my script. He gets very agitated when I pitch new ideas to him. I'm like, okay, how's this for an ending? And he's like, why did you change it? So he is, he, I love him. We respect each other. Uh, I, I trust his story sensibility when we're watching a movie, but he does not understand the development process of creating a script. So I do not give him my stuff to read. Um, I have a friend whose husband is not in the industry, uh, but he's his first reader he, and his last reader, right? So I think it's about trusting someone's story sensibility um, and also um, people that you genuinely like and respect and trust, right? We talk a lot about finding your group. Um, there's this idea of like networking, but I don't know that networking is the best way to say it. It's building real relationships with people in the industry or people whose story sensibility you trust. You know, Meg has been a great mentor for me and she's someone that I feel like I can trust to give her my script and she knows where I am with it, right? I'll say like, this is a first draft and she knows what that means. There are other people that I would give a version to that's like as polished as I can make it and sort of understanding those. But yeah, start with writers groups, start with, you know, maybe if you have a friend who's a director, um, just, you know, the more people you know who love story, the better. You know, yeah, and not everyone is about giving your stuff to read. It's also about being generous and offering to read their stuff because you yeah. also learn a lot in that too. That curiosity and generosity offering, you know, I read somebody's thing on Twitter. I thought they were really interesting. I asked them to send me something and I, I really liked it. And sort of now we have this relationship, which I really value. Um, so you never know how putting yourself out there or being available can also 
it's a two-way street. You know, you're not just looking for people to help you. You're also looking to help other people. And I do think going to film festivals is great, right? I mean, certainly, you know, um, you know, when we can all go back to COVID, um, after COVID, you know, certainly Austin is just a writer's festival. There's thousands of writers everywhere and they're all drinking and having a great time and meeting each other. Um, and I think people, it's happening online now. Um, it's certainly on our Facebook feed. Uh, these wonderful writers have started, hey, I want to be in a writer's group who wants to join me. Um, you know, I, I do think, you know, I've always, I don't know, I love community. I've always been putting together writer's groups. It's just something that I love to do. Um, so I do think any any way you can to get that feedback and know that their answer to the problem may not be right, but the problem is the problem. That's what you're really looking for in that feedback is what isn't clear? What in this dream are they not getting? Um, so, uh, and the support of um, just the life, the life of go again and go again. And, you know, certainly Lori and I text each other like, oh my God, <laughs> this happened yes. today. Can you believe it? Yes. Yeah. And it helps too to, to work things out, process with someone that you trust. Like, I hate this note. Why do you hate that note? You know, just digging into the bottom of it of, you know, this isn't the note I want. What's the note you want? You know, like what the answer to that problem is. My favorite um, was um, when, I, when we were doing Inside Out and Ronnie Del Carmen came up with Personality Islands. And we had so many rules in this freaking movie. It was so hard. And I was like, oh, I, I went to lunch with Mike Jones, who wrote Soul. And I was like, oh, I am not putting in personality islands. That is ridiculous. <laughs> it is so hard. I already have like 20 balls in the air. Let's just add another ball. Let's just change the whole thing. It's too hard. And he was like, I actually think that's really good. And I was like, oh, <laughs> shit, it is. I know. It's really good. <laughs> Crap. Crap, I have to do it, don't I? He's like, oh yeah, you totally have to do it. And I was like, I have to change like everything. He's like, yeah, it's it's good enough. You gotta go try it. You gotta try it. And I was like, oh God. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it that's what you need. A little bit of somebody sometimes putting your feet to the fire too, right? Like, I yeah. don't know. I think you gotta go again. I think you gotta try it, I, you know? And that's trust. You gotta find somebody you trust like that. Yeah. And I just wanna say to anybody watching that hasn't seen their podcast on notes, you have to go and listen to it because uh, yes, yes. It's like, fuck me, fuck you, what's next? Yes, yes. You know, getting yeah. notes. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna bring that up a little bit. Like uh, I got notes this morning and I just had to be like, great note. You? What's that? What stage are you in? <laughs> uh, actually, what was so frustrating, you know, this is the second real time that I've been like, I'm done with the script, I'm done. Like, this is it. This is the version. And then I got these notes today that were, you know, I was prepared to be like, fuck you, fuck you and your fucking notes. But the notes were really good, like really good. They were Damn asking. <laughs> I know. I'm Damn so it. mad because I can't even do the fuck you, fuck me what I do now. I'm just like, oh, God, you know, they were they were asking me. Uh, I want more of your character and I want more of your character's point of view. So it wasn't about dismantling anything. It was like, now I have to go figure out what's holding that back, mm. you know? And it's, so it's like that emotional character stuff I have a dive into. So, but I'm, I'm sure as soon as I get off this and I jump into my script, I mean, I'm then I'm going to be like, fuck you. Yeah, I'm waiting ah! for the crack. I'm waiting for the <laughs> but it was, a. Uh, but I tried to be, you know, you know, I'm taking the notes, I'm doing the typing the notes out as he's telling me and, and I had to be like, these are great notes. Thank you so much. I'll jump right in, which I would have said, even if I hated them, because I want to keep getting his notes, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and, 
And I, but I do, I was really mad that they were good notes because that's a lot more work to do than <laughs> spinning my wheels emotionally about how mad I am. Um, I didn't even get to be mad because I know I just have to do it. Yeah. yeah. So that blows. Yay. Guess how I'm spending my week. <laughs> I'll send you guys a picture later when I'm like fully like having demolished multiple bags of chips covered in index cards, crying, <laughs> cheap tequila, you know, Meg will, Meg will be testing me. Are you alive? I'm like, I am living in the lava. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's amazing. Okay, so that sort of brings me to my last question. Well, okay, second to last question, because there's one question we always ask everybody at the end. Um, but my second to last question is one of the quotes that really stood out to me from one of your podcasts was that the pit is also the well. And, you know, it's this, I mean, here we are, we're talking about, it's like getting notes, it's like all of these emotions and, and you know, and we feel like, am I good enough? And like all of this uncertainty and this, this, this like black bubble that we're in, especially now with, with the times that we're in. And I mean, a lot of us are just kind of emotionally fried and it's like putting all that emotion onto the page as well. It's just like, I can't do it. Uh, but then you were saying that, that, you know, this is also the well, this is where our creativity comes from. So do you want to just expand on that a little? You know, I think that great artists, no matter what their medium, they have either born with or have worked uh, to create. They don't have the, they, 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 they shutter off the blocks. They don't allow the blocks to come in to that pure experience of those, that experience, those emotions. And the, it feels like you're in the pit, like you're in the lava, you're in the, it really makes you uncomfortable. That is actually the juice. That's the humanity. That's the vulnerability. That's actually what I want to read on the page. That's it. That is, that is the thing everybody's reading all these scripts for. All the stuff that's making you feel uncomfortable. I, I hope that you're able to use the COVID uh, uh, experience of whatever it's pulling up in you and give it to your character, give it to a story, see how honest and real you can be about it. Even if it's unlikable or ugly or whatever judgment you have about it as it comes up, that is the very thing that soft spot in you is the thing I want in the script. It, it is the thing I'm looking for when I read it as a producer. It's, it's what's going to set you apart from all the hundreds of scripts that are given into contests and managers and agents get. That is it because it's innately, uniquely you. And you're being brave and they'll know it. They'll know it. That. <laughs> I mean, I have to go in there later this afternoon. So what I have to do is uh, not do anything else. I don't get to go upstairs and check in with my kid for school. You know, all those excuses I have. And all of a sudden it's the end of the day. I have to just get off this call and go into my script or else I won't because and, you it's know, so it, scary. And it can start very dry because your brain doesn't want you to do it. Like your brain really will think you're going to die if you expose this thing and it or it's unconscious or it's in a blind spot or there's a re million reasons but that's why i suggest morning pages sometimes to, so that your brain gets used to just because when you write morning pages the first page is usually nonsense you know you can't stop writing even if it's like this is the dumbest thing i've ever done i hate megan lorian for making me write morning pages blah, you know and sometimes i bring my blah 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 and then all of a sudden 
up it comes, right? Like uh, yesterday was really hard with my son. I feel really blah, 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 and it'll come up, right? And it's training your brain that, that it's safe to do that. It's safe to allow this stuff up. And then it, it will just unconsciously start feeding into the writing. Um, and when you're writing, I do find not stopping. My son is writing a short film and he was like, well, I wrote two paragraphs and it sucks, so I'm stopping. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what are you talking about? This is it. It was probably just going to start to get good because you just got through the kind of detritus, right? You got through the stuff that, you know, where everybody's brain goes and here comes the personal stuff. Here comes the stuff that makes you uncomfortable. And he was like, yep, I'm out, right? Now I'm gonna have judgments about it. Now I think it's stupid and this will never sell and I can't shoot this and the thousands of reasons, right? And I was like, oh my God. So it is, sometimes it literally just is the discipline to sit there and keep going knowing it, of course this doesn't work and this is bad and whatever is being screaming in your head you just have to keep going and you'll know you'll know when that bubble comes up and it and it pops you'll know because your body will go whoosh, you'll feel in your body a deep kind of relaxation sometimes if you've gone super super deep in that you'll um, need to go take a nap uh it's totally normal uh because it something broke through um, again, sometimes doing this deep work, I want you to have support, you know, certainly online now there's therapists and people that you can, and some people just work with artists or just anybody to talk to, um, just because I'm not saying you have to do that, but if you are getting to something that feels like that, um, I just want you to have support. But don't take a nap first. No, <laughs> no, cheater. Oh, there she is. Oh, I, she was my favorite character to write. I love oh. Janice. When so I was cute. writing Sadness, the, when I, and literally, again, it just came out because I, I was just like, and, and all of a sudden she just laid down. And I was like, oh, there she is. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't quite know who she was yet. And she was just this, this, this sadness character. And okay, she's sad. But all of a sudden she just laid down. And I was like, oh, there she is. Right. And then I went back and did that scene where she's talking to Joy. And, and, and it just, she suddenly just arrived. She just arrived. This has been such a fantastic interview and I'm very aware that we've kept you guys over time. So I just want to end with one final question uh, for, for each of you to answer, please. Uh, if you had one piece of advice to the writers listening, <laughs> it would be head to your podcast. No, um, that's true. <laughs> yes. What would it be? Laura, you go first. I mean, mine is always find your group find your people. Like Meg, I like to build communities. I like to be a part of communities. I like to um, be in a place where I can be vulnerable and tell the truth and I can sort of support other people to tell their truth. So I, I think figure out the best way to find your group and that support, whatever that is, therapist, a partner, writing friends. Uh, I just think it's so key to our survival as writers, especially now having a group and a network and being seen and being able to see other people. Yeah, acknowledged. And mine is, um, we please don't stop. Please write because we need your stories. The world needs your stories. You are valuable and worthy and your stories are valuable and worthy and we need them. I want to hear them. The world wants to hear them. And if you stop and you don't write every day or whatever it is commitment you've made, then your characters aren't gonna be here. Your characters are not going to come into the world. So if you if you can't fight to write for yourself, please fight to write to them, for them because we need them. 
Amazing. Thank you both so much. This You're is thank you. to highlight. Yeah. Good, good. Yay. Thank you, Savannah. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Uh, Chris, <laughs> over to you. Thank you so much, everyone. I know we have a hard out at half past the hour, so I'm going to make this very quick. If there's one reason we created London SWF 365, tonight was that reason. Thank you so much for being part of this extraordinary conversation. Um, and hopefully we'll have you back one day in the future when we're maybe in the real world. Who knows? Ooh, we will it. see. I'd love great. it. Thank you so much. And we'll let right. you go. And well done, Savannah. That was spectacular. Yes. Yes. Great job. Great job. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it, and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.